0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land and for this episode in particular, the Ngunnawal people. I pay my respects to their Elders past, present and emerging.
1: There's so much great stuff out there. You've got to get a catalogue of amazing wines and and fail and buy wines that you don't like and buy wines that you didn't enjoy and and think, yep, right, I won't get that again, but at least I gave it a shot and that way you're always learning, always experiencing something new.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shantae Whale. Mount Majora Vineyard has been shaking things up in the Canberra District since 1988. A stalwart winery of the zone, today they have a reputation for producing benchmark traditional and flagship varieties. Fergus McGee joins me today to tell me more about the future of this small but grand estate. Hi Fergus, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey Shadi, thanks for having me.
0: It's wonderful to have you on. Uh, I've long been a fan of the wines of Mount Madura. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of where you got your start and how you came to work for these guys?
1: Um, yeah, of course. So me as a, uh, as, a, as a wine person, I started, I was studying an arts degree at ANU, uh, doing English and philosophy, art history, French, Italian, all the cool stuff that probably wasn't uh, very vocational. Um, and at the same time, I was working in a fine dining restaurant at the Hype Hotel in Canberra, which has now disappeared, the Oak Room. And we had these amazing wines there. And at some point, I swapped from arts to a wine science degree and, uh, and followed that that uh, that passion. The Mount Majora thing was uh, many, many, many years later, uh, I was working for Coles, managing one of the first choice wine shops, writing for the Canberra Times and I would be started becoming a real fan of Tempranillo. And I think I did my fourth Christmas in a row in in a big box format store and it was pretty stressful. And I thought that's the last time I do a Christmas in retail. (laughs) And the job came up to uh, be at Mount Majora and I knew that the Tempranillo from there was amazing and I wanted to pursue that further. So uh, I was lucky enough to get a job there.
0: Wow, that's kind of amazing, because when I looked over kind of your CV, like you've done a bit of absolutely everything. And I thought, you know, I don't know how I'm going to sum all of that up and all of that wealth of knowledge and experience. So I'm really glad that you did that for me. Thank you for that. (laughs) <laughs> but it is a bit more detailed than that. I mean, you, you, like you said, you you were studying and you you felt the pull to wine. Was there a moment where you decided that wine was something you know worth pursuing? Was there a moment uh, working in fine dining that you kind of remember as a standout?
1: Oh, this this restaurant was pretty amazing. Uh, we had an all male staff, which was a very old fashioned thing to do at the time. Uh, we wore the full black tie and all that sort of thing. And if you walked into the restaurant, on the left-hand side was a cool room cellar with the whites in it, and it had, you know, DW13s and Vat1 Semillons and uh, amazing Chardonnays from Margaret River, and, and, and to me it was like that was one side. Then the other side was uh, every classic Australian red you could think of from Grains to St Hugo to Mount Edelstons, etc. cetera, uh, Lindemans, Pyrus, those sorts of really old-school sorts of wines that people don't seem to drink that much anymore. And uh, to be honest, we used to um, occasionally short pour our customers. I would have to say, uh, and, and we would leave a glass in the waiter station out the back, and very respectfully leave it. No one would touch it until the end of service, lunch or dinner. And you'd say to the guys on the floor, what, "What's that wine there?" And they'd say, "Well, it's um, that's the seventy-three range that table four are drinking." It's like, "Oh wow!" And then and then we'd share it. Um, and, and discuss it and talk about what we saw in the wine and what we enjoyed about it and we got a group together and we would do a wine and um, a, a lunch with the team and it was just the staff it wasn't run by management or anything like that and we'd um, somebody would cook uh, and serve lunch and everybody else had to bring a really special bottle of wine so from that era there's still a couple of mates of mine it are still in the wine game today and it was really yeah just that sort of formative moment and at some point my arts degree I was missing a lot of classes because I was working too much um I was having too much fun in restaurants and wine I thought I should just do this wine thing so took up wine science at Charles Sturt.
0: Well I'm so glad that you did you also um said uh, in in an interview earlier a little bit about your your family and their experience kind of traveling tell me a little bit about that Chablis experience.
1: (laughs) yeah um it's one of those things that I look at now and I was, I've was become aware that we were drinking wine a lot uh, as, um, not a lot, but we were allowed to drink wine at home uh, and have the odd taste of whatever mum and dad had. My brother and I were uh, 11 and 12. Uh, mum and dad took a month off and we took a, took us out of school and we went to France and travelled around France for a, for a month, which was amazing, a uh, great experience. But the one that sticks in my mind about wine We went to Chablis and mum and dad uh, bought a bottle of uh, Premier Cruise Chablis and we sat down on the river with classic baguette, ham, cheese and ate lunch. Mum and dad drank the whole bottle and didn't share any of it with my brother and I and we were really, really dark. Um, Mum and dad banged on about how amazing it was and uh, we couldn't believe that they weren't going to share. So that that sticks in my mind because, one, I didn't get to try it and, uh, and two, we were tasting wine and talking about it and interested in it. at quite a young
0: age. It's pretty cool. I mean, Chablis is such a beautiful part of the world. It's so unique. You couldn't be kind of anywhere else when you're in Chablis, when you look around at those beautiful kind of thatched houses and things. But I love that your parents took you at that age because I think really from 12 to 15, you know, when you're at the end of kind of primary school, you feel like you're the boss of the school. You're kind of getting your confidence and then you kind of go through that phase before high school where you then become the smallest. And I just think it's a really good place to travel with children because it broadens their mind, I think, from being very self-centric about what's happening in their own world to just realising how big and diverse the world is.
1: Oh, yeah. I think the history really hits you too. When Australia has a very um, yeah, an ancient, ancient history, going back to our First Nations people. But the European history is, is uh, something that hit me at the time, you know, going to old monasteries and, and castles and, and museums and art galleries and, and seeing how far back European history went before um, they arrived in Australia. Uh, yeah, the world's a, a much bigger place and to get the chance to travel at that age was amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, good on them for for taking you out for that month. I think that that's, you know, school is important, but there are other things that are even more important. I think that they obviously knew that. But we let's go back to Mount Majura. You decide to go, go ahead and work for them. You actually got to meet Dr. Edgar Rick. Tell me a little bit about what he was like as a person and what your first formative kind of few years was was like working for the company.
1: Yeah, uh, Edgar and I were friends uh, a long time before I started Bamba Chirri Vineyard. Uh, there's a really tight wine community in Canberra. Um, a lot of the local reps uh, would get together and we'd, we'd taste wine together. And there was a Friday lunch group uh, at a, a restaurant called Cafe della Piazza. Edgar would always be there uh, along with the other guys that could make it. And I would try and get there whenever I could. And Edgar just had this incredible love of wine Um a desire to learn everything about everything. He he could tell you uh, where there was a wild quince tree growing on the road between Canberra and Cooma. Uh, there's stories. He's he's pretty much eaten every animal he's killed. He was doing push-ups right until his very last day. He'd have cold showers, um, and he was just just a really fascinating man. And and what everybody loved about Edgar was his. Um, straightforward nature if something wasn't right or if something was wrong you go you, he this famous sort no 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 and then you'd, you'd, you'd learn and you'd sit and you'd listen um and he was very generous to me with time and and thoughts mine. and uh yeah he also happened to start Mount Madrid Vineyard um through his advice to Dinny Killen who was the lady who actually owned the land and and investors in the vineyard he um he saw a ancient piece of Silurian era rock, um, limestone and volcanic mixed together, um, 430 million years old. And it has an east facing site, so east, northeast. Um, so really fantastic frost protection, which is important in Canberra. Um, the limestone was an idea about, about Burgundy and some of the other great regions that are on limestone. So it was the ideal spot to plant a vineyard. So that's that's what Dinny did. And it started Mount Ventura Vineyard in 88 from there.
0: Amazing. I mean, the Canberra District is an interesting one, especially because most of the wineries are not actually within um, that kind of district. They're further north in Murrumbateman and Yass and Hall. Whereabouts are you located in reference to kind of uh, the city itself and the district?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's um, The Canberra District GI stretches over a fair bit of territory and also um, elevations and, and soil types uh, and Mount Majura, now it's the only one that's really in the ACT. So we're literally 15 minutes from the city, um, and it's it's amazing for me. You know, you live in town, you can have all the rest um, of city living and good cafes, good restaurants, good schools, all those sorts of things, good sporting facilities, and 20 minutes to drive to work. So um, it's a pretty pretty cushy spot, I've got to say.
0: Yeah I mean that's that really is the the best of both worlds which is great that you've you've managed to find something you know in a place that you want to work you've now worked for them for over 12 years and it, like I said a bit earlier, um, the estate is really known for its strength in um, some of the more traditional varieties that kind of took off and that Canberra is known for. But then of the alternate varieties, we call them alternate. I don't I hate that word, but it's hard to find another that replaces it. But other um, interesting varieties that are, that are, you know, finding um, homes and, and safe spots down in your kind of soils. Tell me a little bit about you know, the decisions behind kind of working with Tempranillo and, and you know, all those other varieties like Graciano and Trigo National and Luero and all those other fascinating things you're working with?
1: Yeah, I guess um, so it came about because the vineyard was going to be a Pinot Noir vineyard. Um, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were planted um, in the 80s and also some Cabernet Franc and Merlot, uh, a little bit of Cab Sav. So those, you know, old school traditional French varieties and we all know that Pinot Noir is the Holy Grail. Uh, Franco winemaker went to Burgundy, made wine in Burgundy for a couple of years, and came back and realised that Canberra's climate is really not quite Burgundy. Um, much hotter, much drier, bigger diurnal range. Um, that really sort of hot, baking, dry heat that we get in summers, um, where Burgundy is a little bit gentler and a little bit, um, yeah, bit softer as a climate. So the idea was, well, okay that's gonna make life difficult for us if we're trying to grow the, the, the pinnacle, which was always always the goal. Um, and then we looked at other varieties uh, and Frank talking to people like Mark Walpole um, from King Valley, um, a you know, genius viticulturist uh, mm-hmm. and looking at other studies, there's a study done um, mapping European known regions across Australian regions. And the match with Rioja and Rivero del Duero in Spain was almost identical to Canberra. And the climate data they got for Canberra came from the airport, which is literally five minutes down the road from the vineyard. So it was diurnal range. It was uh, annual rainfall, it was elevation. It was all of those things that go towards influencing grape growing. Tempranillo was bang on exactly what we should be planting. So then I guess from there it was... Okay, Tempranillo works. Um, a year later, or well, before we even knew it worked, a year later, um, so Tempranillo planted in 2000, the first block. Um, a year later, uh, we planted Graciano just because uh, Frank had read something from Jancis Robertson that said the best Riochas also had a had a tweak of Graciano. So before we even knew hmm. that Tempranillo might be a possibility, Graciano was in. And it's it's been, you know, sheer joy, exp- you know, exploring a variety that's not so well known. Um, trying to do the best that we can with it, and um, and yeah, being a leader. I think when we first started, there were twenty or thirty people growing Tempranillo. Now there's you know hundreds and hundreds, and it's becoming a really well known and successful variety in Australia.
0: Yeah, it it does seem to be doing well in a quite a few varied regions. Like you said, it, it's kind of textbook kind of Canberra for for the ripening of Tempranillo, um, and it's such a strength now as a, as a a variety in terms of being, I think, very – Fruit forward, but have all of those kind of grungy, darker spices that we see from Tempranillo. So you really see. I love
1: you say that that grungy, darker spice yeah. is is pretty cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and um, I, that's when I when I when I taste Tempranillo from Canberra, I'm like, this is what I have seen in the world over, but it, it's unique to where it's grown as well in terms of those diurnal ranges. So you really see that kind of, you know, that those cool nights and that crunchy acidity. So I think it's. It's great because you see the Australian terroir but then you also really get the expression of what I know of Tempranillo so it's it's a huge strength in the region
1: oh look yeah it's it's we have an internal mantra at the vineyard it's like quality that comes naturally you know and it's it's everybody it's a cliche to say that great wine is grown in the vineyard but um it it's 100% true and that's why cliches are cliches and, and it's it's about quality that comes naturally if the if the fruit grows beautifully in the vineyard if the climate is helping us get it to where it should be then really the winemaking is just you've got a chance to make something even better or or stuff it up but it's really getting that a beautiful fruit in and um it, it's funny because over the years um we did grow Pinot Noir for a fair while we stopped making it in 2017 as a still red wine it still goes into our sparkling um in a cool year a wet year a dry year a hot year you'd go into the cellar and look at the red barrels and it's always the Tempranillo and always the Shiraz that were the, the peak wines and standout wines. So you think other varieties might do well in other areas or other other seasons, but it's still always those two varieties. So uh, they've they've totally proved themselves. And then I guess the the fun of playing with Tempranillo, um, Frank, our winemaker was ex uh, CSIRO, and to me it looks like the experiments on the hill now. And so we, we we're trying other things. We we wonder what else could be. Uh, a a great mix and a great fit for our vineyard. So, yeah, Mondeuse, uh, Turriga Nacional, and then we've got some uh, Ansonica in at the moment, which is uh, produced Mm. about 50 litres from last year, which we're all very carefully tasting and not tasting too much. Um, And then, yeah, we're going into some other things like Mencia, Lerero, Albarino, we might get a little bit of fruit off this year. So it's sort of, there's all these paths you can follow in winemaking and, and what will set your brand apart what will set your vision apart uh for us it's very much uh trying these new varieties and seeing what else is out there that traditional winemaking and simple you know clean normal winemaking not not too funky not too um uh, avant-garde in that regard but the avant-garde part about our business now winery is is trying new things that are varietal
0: i like that because it, it is um there is a risk not knowing if, you know, some of those plantings are, are not going to work and they're not going to take off or, or simply that they might grow well, but the Australian market or the palate is not there for them. But it's always great to see that people are stepping out of their comfort zones, especially when your wines and your French varieties like, you know, Riesling are doing so incredibly well. And I think that's what's special about Mount, Ma- Mount Majara is that there is um, such strength in um, kind of the past and what, what you have kind of first had in the ground but also the strength of everything else that's kind of coming up to, to join that portfolio. So, your Rieslings are doing particularly well uh, as of late?
1: Yeah, Riesling is, um, again, um, Frank said he once when I first started, uh, he would die a happy man if he could make the perfect Riesling. And it is that kind of variety. Like, it's so much about purity. Um, we, we make it in a very... Pure traditional way, uh, and it's about getting that fruit absolutely perfect. About getting that balance of acidity and uh, and, as, and, and juice uh, just just right. Um, we're really lucky that over the years we've had uh, a number of really fantastic assistant winemakers and uh, and wine show judges working in our cellar door and things. So there's some, there's more than one good palate in the room when we look at uh, blending juice back and those sorts of things. And getting that stuff right. It's really fun. We, um, we were just looking at, uh, yesterday, day before, uh, additions to dosage for our latest scorch sparkling. And, you know, we're actually, um, splitting hairs over half a gram of, of um, residual in a sparkling and we could see the difference. And that's, that's like so much fun.
0: Definitely, and I think that those uh, hairier conversations need to happen over even half a gram of desage because it can make or break the wine, so I actually love hearing that.
1: <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, like, it's one of those things, right, you thought, you, you, I think everybody very modestly thinks we know something about wine, but when you actually put it together and say we can tell the difference and we've got trained palates and we're, we're putting this um, expertise into what goes into the bottle for everybody else and half a gram makes a difference, that's... Um, yeah, that's pretty highly tuned modus uh, making that sort of stuff happen, which Absolutely. is pretty
0: fun. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges in the region, particularly because there has been some very cool, some wet years. And frost can be particularly painful um, in the region because of those high diurnal kind of shifts and how cold it can get at night. I know that recently there's been some incredibly challenging frost come through and some that have really decimated s- sometimes the entire crop. Um, you're in a special place because you're at a little bit higher in altitude, Um, you've got really good kind of air drainage and your frost isn't something that can be as damaging. Is that right where you are?
1: Yeah, you're right Um, and we just feel really lucky that we're in the right spot. Um, It's very hard for the district when we've had the bushfires in 2020 and and wipe out an entire season. Uh, A couple of cooler, wetter years where, you know, Yields are down, so everybody in the, in the district really needs a, a good season this year, and, and we're, we, you know, looking forward to those uh, warmer, drier conditions that are that are forecast. And of course, with that um, comes with you know, clear skies and and uh, and dry conditions, the, the risk of frost. And yeah, who'd be a farmer? Um, the, the guys out at Marin Bateman, uh, in particular, there's, there's a few that have really suffered, um, but. It's, it's what we do it for. I, I think the, the bushfire year was, for me, it really it dawned on me, and it, it's happened a few times, so I was just reminded, but it dawned on me that we often think of wine as, um, you know, a fast-moving consumer good that you can just go and get another one and another one and another one, and it's you go to the shelf and, and you, put, you reach out and take another bottle home. But sometimes that shelf's empty. Sometimes you can't grab that bottle because conditions weren't right. So, you know, you miss out and... I think we should always be grateful for every glass that we have and every bottle. When you look at it and you think everything had to go right for that wine to end up in my glass today, and that's the romance of it. But it's also the challenge at the same time. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that that to me is even even you know more modest wines. There's something that's that's made them special and, and uh, enjoyable to drink and. Um, there's there should always be something romantic in drinking wine. It's not just a, it's not just a craft beer or whatever, which I love. Um, but it's it's the combination of all those factors that makes wine that little bit more special as a drink.
0: Yeah, I think when I see um, people buying wine and and you know a declared fantastic vintage. I always think, you know, everybody's scrambling over to get themselves another six-pack, whatever, but it really is in the more challenging years when, you know, we love wine because it is an indicator of what's happening in the world and yet in the tougher times, I sometimes think it's, is it, how do we support wineries in those tougher times when maybe it isn't the perfect vintage, but it's, they you know, great winemakers still make great wine in very challenging vintages. So, I always just think, you know, Maybe don't always go for the the obvious bleeding choice that is this wonderful vintage that you know some reviewers said's fantastic. You know, support your winery.
1: Oh, Shant, I'm to- <laughs> totally with you on that. Yeah, it, it's it's and you know it's the 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 great winemakers really show themselves in the uh, the more challenging vintages. And it's I think because we're a single vineyard producer, for us it's like um, if you had a cellar of our wine, there would be a catalogue of all the seasons in there. And that's, that's pretty cool. And you can drink one and go, that was the hot year, that was the, the storms in January year, et cetera, and, and delve into those wines. And you see the lighter styles from the cooler years, as, as everybody knows, and you see the, the weight and the power of the richer, warmer years. And that's, that makes wine so much more interesting than just something that's um, consistent year in, year out. So, you know, we, we want quality, but we embrace the inconsistency of, uh, of the seasons and those challenges for sure.
0: You're president of the Canberra District Wine Association. Uh, you know, I when I think of Canberra, and I, I've drunk Canberra wines for a long time, I think of the sheer amount of quality for the producers that are there. I, You know, there are some bigger commercial interests, but it's not huge. Most of the wineries are, you know, family-run, smaller estates, like yourselves who say, you know, we've got 22,000 vines, You're, you catalogue yourselves as per vine, which I love because I know that those vines are tended to with that same kind of love. But uh, as the president of the association, how do you go forth and kind of present to the rest of Australia? And what, what does Canberra do that nowhere else in Australia does?
1: I think what Canberra does is, is like you said, it's cliche, but we do really produce some amazing wines for such a small district. Uh, and if you put things in perspective, we are, I always think of that um, Dr. Seuss book and or images where there's like, we are all small and then we are all tall. We are all small in, in our um, district. And that's that makes it a really fascinating spot because people are experimenting, uh, whether it be in, um, you know, avant-garde winemaking styles or new varieties. We're very small. We're very um, dynamic in terms of, of the way we play in the in the space of, of wine in Australia. And to put things in perspective, I, I I don't know the exact number, but roughly our crush last year was about 2,000 tonnes. And yet the first winery I worked in in the Hunter uh, as a cellar hand we did three thousand tons through the one winery in a mm-hmm. in a couple of you know in a month and a half, which was madness and heaps of fun. But you know, you, you think one Hunter Winery could could possibly uh, put the entire Canberra District crush through uh, in a season? That's that that really identifies how small we are. Like mm-hmm. I think we picked seventy tons uh, last year, somewhere thereabouts, and only just. Um, and a, a lot of people are just like that. So. What you get is is a really hands-on experience. You're always going to go to a cellar door and, and run into a family member or, or the winemaker themselves, or somebody who's a you know, jack of all trades, a little bit of cellar door, a little bit of vineyard, um, and that makes Canberra brilliant and, and a really exciting place to uh, to grow to grow fruit.
0: Yeah, it sure is. There is just. Um... There is so much on offer. I remember the first wine I ever fell in love with was from uh, from Canberra was Riesling. And I think we often say Chardonnay is the winemaker's wine. I feel like Riesling is the unmade wine because it is so transparent. And if, you know, the fruit isn't there if it's if it's not there in the vineyard. Um, it's quite a, a wine that I think showcases kind of what's happening. And yes, you, maybe you can leave a bit more sugar in there, but I think those pure wines, and that is Canberra for me, pure Riesling that is just looks effortless. And like you said, purity. That's exactly what I see of of Mount Majura's, um Rieslings is just, it's so pure and it's just so elegant. But then when I tried the rest of the wines, I remember trying Mondeuse, and I was like, man, if they're making Mondeuse that I want to drink, what else can they do?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think uh, it, from Riesling across the Reds for us, it—it uh, it is about uh, purity of expression. There's there's not a lot of new oak, there's not a lot of mucking around What we really want to show is that fruit that we grew in our vineyard and Riesling is that crazy thing. I, I remember going back to that vintage in the Hunter, I was trying to learn the flavours of the different juices and I had a run sheet and I'd go to the Semillon tank that I thought was Semillon taste and go yep and then I'd look and I'd do it, oh, it's a Chardonnay tank and then the Videlo tank looked like the, the Chardonnay tank and etc and it wasn't until a, a day in a vineyard picking Riesling uh, I got hungry and and I ate some, and I'm looking around at everybody else in the vineyard. Go, oh god, this tastes like riesling. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and you know, it goes it goes straight from the vineyard into the glass. And with the Diurnal range, we get these really brilliant, um, bright, fresh acidity that you mentioned before as as a result, and also fantastic aromatics. So. We really want to work with those things and we've just got this gift of great natural acidity, particularly for things like Tempranillo as well, and then and then these beautiful aromatics. Mm. So the wines may never be, um, you know, the monsters you see from warmer regions or, or the, the big commercial producers, but we make these delicate, pretty perfumed styles that fortunately for us, um, you know, in terms of wine fashion is exactly what people want to drink these days.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And there is such a range of styles, you know, unlike some regions, I love that everybody has embraced of, you know, you do you with Riesling. If you want to you know, go in there with 36 grams of residual sugar, absolutely go for it if that's the balanced wine that you want to make. There isn't really a this is the camera style and you must stick to it. And that is fantastic because there's so much on offer. And I I, I really think it is such an exciting region, and and I'm thrilled to to get my get down there anytime I can. I would love to know a little bit about your palate, Fergus. If you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what what would they be and why? Oh,
1: I'm you'd have to. I'm a real sucker for Hendrix and cucumber. <laughs> um, such a it's like lemonade for adults, uh, and. I pretty much can't go past that. I'm a big fan of um, pale ale styles of of craft beers uh, without going to the extremes of hoppiness. Like there are, like some people like to sort of get that um, self-flagellation of heaps too much hops and and then think that that's still a good thing. Um, I'm more a man of balance. Uh, And then, yeah, in wines, you mentioned Chardonnay before. If you could give me Chardonnay for the rest of my life, I'd I'd still be very, very happy. (laughs) Um, Whether it's, Mornington, Margaret River, Chablis, like we mentioned, um, uh, you know, White Burgundy, it just does so many cool things. And um, and you could drink it forever because you'll never find, it's, it's 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 a bit like peanut, you know, like it's ethereal. You can't really nail down what makes great Chardonnay in the same way that you can easily catalogue something like Cabernet. You know, Cabernet Sauvignon, there are rules and it should taste like a certain way and it's got a certain amount of tan and it can handle a certain amount of oak. It's nice to see a little bit of herbal notes there. You want to see cassis as a fruit profile, that's Cabernet done and dusted. You can't do that so much with, you certainly can't do it with Pinot, and it's hard to do with Chardonnay. So, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Chardonnay nut, <laughs> well, well and
0: truly. I love that. It's that twelve year old, you know, boy in you that has FOMO that just never got that Chablis that's still chasing the dream of Chardonnay, and it's a good good journey to be on. <laughs>
1: Oh, I think so. So, yeah, um, is the psychoanalysis <laughs> is, is that that's it. That's probably I'm still missing out on something in Shardy, so still looking. But, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I, I, and it's, it's its not really about, um, wine's not really about, you know, the, the fancy expensive wines either. At the moment, I'm working through a whole lot of um, mid-priced uh, Italian and Spanish and um, mostly Italian and Spanish wines that I can find in some of my local shops that are just, yeah the smashable thing that you want to come home and you can see some of that dirtiness of you know dirty grungy bits and pieces but some nice fruit as well and um you know things that are coming to Australia these days with screw caps and so on um your day-to-day stuff that is still enjoyable as drinking wine Mm. that's that's my current search
0: I love that because there is a mystic that That comes with some wines where you can't quite place what the flavor profile or what the aroma is and it's something other and whether it's like a ferrous quality or a spice or an animal who knows what but I actually love that too because it keeps me guessing and it keeps me wanting to pour another glass to kind of put my nose back in it and taste it again and and there's you know you don't want to always have it all figured out I don't think
1: oh no I don't think so either yeah like it's um I, I used to. I, when I was working for vintage sellers, uh, and I was I was quite young uh, and, and managing, and I was I was trying a hundred wines a week comfortably in in a good week. And I remember vividly this guy came in who was older than me, um, wearing a pinstripe suit, looked like a banker, and he looked me up and down, thought this guy knows nothing, and said, "Mate, where do you keep your penfolds? folds?" And I'm like, "Oh, no way!" And so I just showed him. And I let it go. But it really upset me because that day or that week I'd actually had some fantastic Chaputier uh Shirazes, um, with one of their agents in Australia. And I was I was just I wish I could have said, look, mate, there's other Shiraz out there to drink. Um, and people get stuck in a rut. I think we're all guilty of it. You go to the same restaurant, the same pub because it's easy or whatever, you drink the same beer. It's it's there's so much great stuff out there. You've got to get a catalogue of amazing wines and and fail and buy wines that you don't like and buy wines that you didn't enjoy and and think, yep, yeah, right, I won't get that again, but at least I gave it a shot. And that way you, you're always learning, always experiencing something new. And, yeah, it's a, you know, to me a life philosophy would be that if you're going to eat a lot of meals, you're going to drink a lot of drinks, You've got to make every meal as good as you can, and every drink as good as you can. And by the time you die, you've 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 added up a thousand, a million great experiences, and that's got to be a life well lived.
0: It's very well said, and I am wholeheartedly on that bandwagon. We're better people and we have, you know, diverse experiences. So I totally agree with you. Fergus, thank you so much for joining me. It's been uh, lovely to get to know you and hear more about um, your career and uh, where you're headed as well. So thanks for all your work, especially with all the associations that you're part of, and I hope we get to meet in person sometime.
1: Yeah, well, come by any time. I mean, I've, yeah, I'm just a wine fanatic who works in a vineyard and it's um, it's a pretty pretty nice thing to do. So um, come by and visit. We'd love to see you. Thanks, Shante.
0: Thanks, Fergus. Cheers to you. You too. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.